I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 103. Today in the show, we're joined by Dr. Craig Harper, one of the nation's foremost experts on deer habitat management, and we're talking food plots, timber stand improvement, old fields, and much, much more. Hey there, guys and gals, and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we're joined by someone who I guarantee you're going to enjoy hearing from. I first heard Dr. Craig Harper back probably six or seven years ago at a QDMA deer steward course. And then since then, I've heard him speak at a number of other deer and habitat related events and seminars. And every single time I've walked away from these, you know, seminars, having learned a ton and having really enjoyed myself as well. Now, Dr. Craig Harper is a professor of wildlife management and the extension wildlife specialist in the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries at the University of Tennessee. He's also a renowned authority on all things deer habitat. He was named the 2013 QDMA Professional Deer Manager of the Year. And on top of that, he's also the author of the highly acclaimed Guide to Wildlife Food Plots and Early Secessional Plants. So, today we're going to pick Craig's brain on all things deer habitat and deer habitat improvement. But before we dive into all that, Mr. Co-host Dan Johnson, do you have any important updates from this past week? Did you kill a turkey yet? I did not kill a turkey, but you did. I did, yeah. I I want to hear that. I want to hear that story. Oh, man, it was a a mess, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) So I'll I'll make it as short and sweet as I possibly can, but we, we headed down to Ohio this weekend to do some work on the property and a turkey hunt, me and my buddy Josh. Um, so got there Friday night, Saturday morning, we got in, started hunting, and there were a lot of birds gobbling, but couldn't get them to come in off the roost. So eventually, after a couple hours, we did some walking around, had a couple actually kind of relatively close calls while running and gunning, but just couldn't quite make it happen. So then for the rest of the afternoon, we trimmed out uh, lanes for some of our tree stands, checked some stands, stuff like that. Um, went back out in the evening, 
and moved our little pop-up blind to this corner of the farm where you can see into like all the different open areas on the property. Um, this is one angle where you can see into like four different sections of this field that otherwise would be blocked off. And our, our plan was basically to sit there and watch and just hope that we might catch some birds moving across one of these open areas and try to talk to them and, and get them convinced to come in. And it was really windy and it was supposed to rain, so I didn't have the highest of hopes that anything would hear us. Um, but figured at least here we could see things. And lo and behold, after sitting there for like an hour, here come three birds, probably like, I don't know, 500 yards away, cutting across this field. I'm not sure how far it was, but very far away. And they head out across this field, and I was kind of thinking, well, I guess just throw out some noise and hopefully can get their attention. But like I said, it was really windy, so I just started squawking away, just trying to do anything just to catch their attention. And it seemed like they heard because they'd stop, perk their heads up, and look my way, but they just kept slowly feeding across the field, going the other direction. And they just milled around the other end of this field for like 20 minutes. And we kept on thinking, ah, are they going to come this way? Are they going to leave? And we were debating if they if they go around that corner, should we grab our stuff and just sprint down the field and try to close the gap? But eventually they just slowly turned and, and started feeding our way down the middle of this finger of just basically what was cut beans from last year. And over the course of like the next hour, maybe hour and a half, these three toms just slowly, slowly pecked their way down the field towards us and every once in a while I'd do a little call and they'd look my way and keep moving that direction so fast forward like I said like an hour they finally it's like wow this is really going to happen I can't we've been sitting here watching these birds like an hour and a half and now it does look like we might get a shot so me and my buddy Josh from the blind and they circle around us um, instead of coming straight in they circle out wide and now we're coming in from our left side and I can't get a shot because the blind the windows of the blind aren't open that way um, so basically now they're in at like, I don't know, 35 yards or so, and they're getting a little nervous. And so now at this point they got to like probably 30 yards or just inside that. And they're about to turn to like bust away. You know, you ever seen that where they kind of take a couple steps and then they spin around like they're going to go the other way and they take a couple steps and spin around. They're kind of jumpy. I'm just like, yep. Josh, just take a shot. Just, just take, we were, we were trying to get a double, but I was like, just, just get your bird. Cause I, you know, I'd already killed one in Michigan, but he hadn't got to get, get out and hunt yet. So he took a shot. And we don't know what happened, but but he missed, and they go taken off. And by the time they go taken off, they they didn't really run that far out. And so Josh was trying to get another shot at the bird he had taken the shot at the first. And while that's happening, I see that they are still within shooting range. So I pull down this other window on the other side, pull my gun out, and take a shot at one as this bird's running off. And I rolled him, and Josh took another shot, and he missed it. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he was really bummed, and we were like all confused. Like I was like, "Was the bird that I shot this, the bird that you shot?" And he's like, "No, no, you 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 took yours out the first shot. I, the one I was the, the one I shot at, he never never connected. So we don't know if something's going on with his gun, but it was chaos. We went running out of the blind, chasing after the bird, and um, you know, I, I got one down. He was a nice, Tom, and I was glad to have it. But I was I was really just bummed for Josh because he this was his first time out this season because of other commitments and stuff and I really wanted him to get one and he just got struck with bad luck kind of the same unfortunately the exact same thing happened to us last year we had a double and I don't know his gun's not patterning well I guess we gotta we gotta check it out and figure out what's going on because um he was super bummed and I it kind of took some of the excitement out of my bird because I I just wanted him to get one so nonetheless it was nice to get some some more meat in the freezer and it was a 
crazy hunt and the next day we went back out and just couldn't get anything to come in again so it was a fun weekend got trail cameras up like i said got some work done on the tree stands so now i'm just we're gonna you know i head out west for a couple months and i'll come back in august and go back to the property check the cameras and hopefully junkyard and jj are back well congratulations and good luck thank you sir i uh speaking of trail cameras you proposed a trail camera bet to me on Twitter this yep. past week, yep. but you never responded to what I proposed as stakes. <laughs> what, what <laughs> that you can, I, if I win, <laughs> I get to come hunt in Michigan. And if you win, you get to come, come hunt my Iowa farm. I think that's perfectly fair. <laughs> yeah, perfectly fair. <laughs> and very, very equal prizes there. <laughs> I wonder what the other hunters would say if this guy pulled up in a, Another hunter pulled up and was like, yeah, I lost the bet. This guy gets to hunt here this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's just tough. They got to they gotta deal with it. Yep, yep. Oh, well, I tell you what, let's think of something else. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But but we are on for a bet, right? Are we going to do the same same rule, same thing as we did last year? Uh, velvet, do you want to have Do you want to have a two-part bet? Uh, um, excuse me, de- uh, explain. Okay, two-part bet, one in velvet. And one hard horn. I like that. Okay, so like uh, biggest velvet buck takes a prize, and biggest hard horn buck takes a prize. So for the hard horn buck, are we waiting till the end of the season then to do that one? Yep. We let's let's say, yeah, at the end of your season and the end of my season, which is somewhere around what January. Mm-hmm first week of January. Yeah, give or take. We yeah, so let's say mid January we will reconvene for the hard horn, but we can we can do the first part in uh let's say September, mid September after the velvet comes off. Okay. I like it. Let's uh I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't have an Iowa hunt this year, so my locations for quality bucks will be going down, but I'm fingers crossed for Ohio. Yeah. I'm I'm willing to get into it. and uh I was close last year, so it could happen. You were close. You were close. It was. Uh, I bet you when coming, you know, coming down to it, those two bucks were really close to the same size. Yeah, it would have been interesting if if either one of us could have killed one <laughs> to yeah. get a, to get a tape on them and see. But either way, cool deer, beautiful deer. So, so I actually tried contacting the Boone and Crockett Club official scores mm-hmm. to take a look at those pictures, and just I, all I said was, you know, hey. I just want your best professional guess on these two deer and what they score. And I showed them two pictures of each buck, and uh, they never responded to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was worth a shot. Oh, that's funny. Well, uh, I'm excited to, to get the summer kicked off. I always get really pumped up about the summer velvet pictures and velvet yep. scouting, getting video of velvet bucks out in the fields. That's just a lot of fun. That's right. I, I'm not quite done with spring yet. I still, I'm still going out. I found a ton of mushrooms last night, which would have been Monday night. And, uh, so I'm going to eat those tonight, Tuesday night. And this weekend I'm Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Saturday and Sunday this, (laughs) this week. (laughs) I'm just mocking you. (laughs) Oh, Mark Canyon. You're like a little brother. Sorry. Continue (laughs) the, uh, but uh, <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> you were talking about this weekend, which oh, is Saturday hunting. and Sunday. Turkey hunting. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go turkey hunting 
this weekend again, Friday or Saturday morning and Sunday morning. Those are the, probably the last two times that I'll be able to get out because uh, I'll be gone on business the following week. And I don't know. I think the season – I might get one more week weekend. I think it closes on the 22nd. May 22nd is when the season closes here in Iowa. So we'll see what happens. Wow, we got to make it happen. Yeah, I know. You uh, you did your you did your good deed for the season, and you got your your wife and stepdad a burb, and now it's your turn. Well, maybe my buddy. I'm, I'm I'll be hunting on my buddy's property, and he's never gotten a turkey before. So uh, my goal is to try to get him one. Okay. So maybe maybe I get out and, and get it done. Maybe I don't, but uh, we will see. Yeah, well, I, I feel like it's just as much fun when you get to be there, like guiding oh, yeah. and calling and stuff. I, I get pumped about that. I think last year I was able to quote unquote guide on three or four different kills last year. That was awesome. And this year it hasn't worked out, <laughs> but, right. but, uh, it's, it's a blast, but it's, it's coming to an end. Turkey season was a, was a wild ride for a lot of people. I feel like some people start so early these, these days, like February seasons or early March seasons. And we're slowly getting to this next phase of the year. And, and now I'm working on some food plot stuff. I've been out spraying food plots and I got to plant some stuff here in late May. I'm going to be putting in um, a food plot screen. Hopefully if, if ever this spot dries out enough, we've been getting right. so much rain. Yeah, um, we did too recently, but uh, it's, it's an exciting time of year. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, I guess, is food plots and habitat projects and, and different things like that. And, and I don't know, you've probably, have you ever heard Dr. Craig Harper before, Dan? Just a little bit um, from the information that you sent me okay. yesterday. I did I did a lot of reading on that. Um, I shouldn't say a lot, but I, I became familiar of what he does. And uh, I'm looking forward to it for the pure fact that hopefully the information that we get today and, and through what I've read helps my very first food plot improve, you know, like be better than if I didn't go, mm-hmm. you know, if I just killed the grass and threw seed in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're definitely, I'm sure you will learn things that are going to help you to make sure you do something better than that. Uh, he's just a, a very interesting speaker and I, I've, I've seen him in a number of different events and he's just, just a guy I could sit and listen to for a long time and very, very, very knowledgeable. So I think we're in for a treat and I suppose with all that uh, being said, we should just make that happen. So let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, and then we'll give Dr. Craig Harper a call. So as most of you know, our good friends at Sitka Gear are the ones who keep this show on the air. And our Sitka Stories series will be continuing next week. But today I wanted to share a slightly more traditional plug for these guys. You know, over the past year or so, we've shared all sorts of interesting tidbits in this Sitka segment. From the recent story series to our specific product-related tips and gear advice from Dennis Zuck. But not too often do I personally talk about what I like about Sika Gear and why I've been wearing their stuff for six or seven seasons now, I think. And I guess that's partly because there's such a long line of specific things I could mention, and that would honestly just be boring. You know, yes, I love the fit and finish and quality of their gear. Yes, I love the fact that they utilize, you know, the best technologies and materials out there. Yes, I love the attention to detail. I really love the attention to detail in their design and their focus on really meeting the actual needs of serious hunters. But maybe, maybe what I appreciate the most about Sitka is that I feel like they've developed a culture 
and a tribe of hunters that I just 100% feel like I'm a part of. You know, the Sitka tribe, as they call it, it's full of guys and girls who love to hunt, who just put it all out there, and who are absolutely 100% sick for it. And that, my friends, is something I can relate with. So if you're sick for it as well, head over to sickgear.com and try this stuff out. I don't think you'll regret it. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the show and give Dr. Craig Harper a call. All right, with us now on the line is Dr. Craig Harper. Welcome to the show, Craig. Nice to be here, Mark. Yeah, I was talking just a little bit ago about how I've uh, you know been able to hear you speak at a Dear Steward course a number of years ago and, and a couple different seminars and Habitat Days, and, and every time I just learn a ton, and I also just get a kick out of hearing you share your hunting stories and food plot stories and stuff, so I know our listeners are, are in for a treat today, but I guess for those that aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, could you share with our audience just a quick bit about your professional background and what you do today related to deer and habitat? Sure. I'm a professor in the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries at the University of Tennessee, and I'm the Extension Wildlife Specialist. And so my primary responsibilities are to assist natural resource professionals, whether that be state wildlife biologists, NRCS, of course, extension agents throughout the state, and others even beyond the state. We do a lot of in-service training in, in other states as well. Assist them in both wildlife programming and with uh, recommendations related to both population management and, and habitat management. And I often use the word we when I say we, we did this or we went out and did this or collected this information, what have you. Uh, most often I'm talking about my graduate students and technicians that work with me. Of course, I would have uh, very little to share with others out across the country if it weren't for some really hardworking graduate students who are out there collecting all these data. And because I'm the extension wildlife specialist, I operate a little differently than a professor whose appointment is teaching in the classroom or strictly research in that, of course, I keep, maintain, and direct graduate students. But as soon as the information is coming in, uh, many times even before it's analyzed, and of course I share this with the audience, look, these are preliminary data, but here's what we're finding. And that's fun for me, and I think that's a lot of fun for the audience because they get a look at what we're doing with regard to uh, the science and research, and uh, it, it's fresh off the press and sometimes even before it hits the press. So uh, that's always fun to provide them just up-to-date information on what we're doing. And a little bit about my interest, um, I'm a manager at heart, always have been growing up on a farm and growing up uh, hunting and fishing and always spending time outside and wanted to be a manager, but uh, life has its twists and turns. And as I was in school, was uh, eventually got into a master's program, and then that led on to a Ph.D. program. And before you know it, you know, I'm working as a professor at a university rather than sitting on a tractor working on a WMA as a wildlife manager. So my interests remain the same, and what I'm getting at is the research I conduct is always management-based. 
it's always research that is designed to help wildlife managers, and that may be professional wildlife managers, or it may be landowners who want to manage their land for wildlife. So that's the approach I take. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of research projects and initiatives that you're doing? I remember reading about some different things you've done when it comes to food plots and studying different types of forages and things like that. But I guess, could you elaborate on that? What specific types of things are you guys actually collecting data on? We have done lots of things over the years, and I will summarize a little bit of what we have done and what we are doing currently. Of course, we've done a lot of work with food plots, and for I think it was about 12 years or so, we maintained several sites in what we will call cafeteria-style plots, and this was done throughout Tennessee, but we also occasionally had some sites in other states as well, but uh, we looked at all kinds of forages. And for example, we might have a two or three acre field and that be separated into 10th acre blocks that are planted to separately to 20 to 25 different species. And we would maintain exclusion cages in those individual units and we would clip the forages inside the cages after each month, and then we would have one cage that would remain for the entire growing season. So we could track things like what deer preferred first, second, third, fourth, right on down the line. We monitored how much uh, forage deer ate each month. We had areas that had high deer densities, medium deer densities, low deer densities, uh, we began to look at lots of different mixtures, what happens when we mix this together or that, what grows best together, how many pounds, you know, what rate of each should be added, um, which herbicides can we use to get rid of these weeds that are, you know, coming into our plots, and then which mixtures are well suited because you can or cannot use herbicides with this forage, but you can with that forage. So, in essence... We spent, you know, 12 years at least, and then even longer than that with some of the other herbicide stuff, and what I would call putting a puzzle together as to which forages were best to use in different areas that deer preferred, that withstood grazing pressure or did not, that would uh, be complementary in a mixture, and for which you could fight various weeds. Uh, so that's the food plot research. And we also did food plot research as related to either forest management, where we would implement practices in forests, such as uh, different types of harvests and thinning with and without prescribed fire, with and without different herbicide applications, and compare that to food plot plantings. Um, we've done a lot of fire work, both in woods and in fields or early successional areas. We've done a lot of work looking at which plants deer eat and which plants they don't eat in early successional areas, how to manage those areas, whether by disking or burning or different herbicide applications, mowing, drum chopping, on and on. A, a lot of stuff has been done over the years with that. Of course, we've looked at wildlife response to some of these things, 
whether it's uh, especially northern bobwhite, done quite a bit of work with, with northern bobwhite, white-tailed deer, elk, wild turkey, rough grouse, um, work with grazing, uh, especially with native grass systems, the effects of grazing native grasses on uh, grassland songbirds and, and also on on northern bobwhite. Uh, and then, of course, herbicide work, both in early successional areas, food plots, and in the woods, whether that be uh, broadcast applications or stem applications in the woods with regard to timber stand improvement. So both, what I would say, woods, fields, and food plots, a lot of different applied management approaches. Wow. I have a I have a quick question, and I know you're on a roll. We're going in the right direction, but this next question is kind of for just my curiosity. But when you you use the term wildlife research, are you guys um, when you do your research, are you looking at all types of animals, all types of wildlife, from you know the biggest animal, which might be a deer, all the way down to bugs and birds and squirrels and you know smaller mammals? There are projects that do that and and I have been involved in some of those and and have led some of those but most of what I do is strictly habitat based uh, for example we we have an ongoing project right now where we're looking at uh, the effects of field management on habitat for different species all right so we know what represents habitat for grasshopper sparrow, northern bobwhite, white-tailed deer fawns, wild turkey poults, eastern cottontail, etc. I, I know what represents habitat for those species and what is not. And we know what the vegetation measurements should and should not be for those species because that work has been done and it's published in the literature. But the question that remain is how should we manage some of these areas to get the composition and structure of vegetation that these species prefer when you put, for example, radio transmitters on these species and follow around, follow them around and see where they go and where they don't go. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, oh, sorry, Craig, were you going to continue? Well, I'll just say one other thing. Uh, of of course, research is always uh, metered by funding. And so it doesn't cost as much money for us to go out and look at habitat management practices and just measure the effects on the vegetation, the forage, et cetera, whether, whether for cover or forage, as it does for us to go out and do that and spend many, 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 many thousands of dollars on radio transmitters, trapping these animals, paying people to follow them around, etc. And the size of the area that you need to look at is, is infinitely greater when you're looking at, you know, the home range of a wild turkey or the uh, uh, nesting territory size of an indigo bunning or a field sparrow or whatever the case may be, as opposed to as opposed to just looking at the vegetation effects. So, you know, the size and complexity of the project is, is always much greater when you're involved in um, home range habitat use of different species. 
Interesting. So, so you had talked a little bit about uh, a second ago about, you know, different types of ideal composition of habitat and all the different, um, you know, needed aspects of habitat for certain species. So, you know, let's talk about deer, of course. Can you describe to us the ideal habitat situation for deer, the composition of, of, you know, timber versus early successional habitat versus et cetera, et cetera. Can you describe what that ideal habitat would look like? I think that might be helpful for our listeners to compare that to maybe what they do or don't have. Yes, and I'm going to make this really, really simple, and I hope people will appreciate that, and it's not going to be what most people will be looking for. Um, Most people are probably going to expect me to say something like it should be uh, 60% mature forest, 20% 20% young forest or brushy cover, 10% early successional cover, and 5% food plot or you know whatever, something like that. That is not the case, period. Ideal habitat for white-tailed deer is an area where they have sufficient food and sufficient cover to obtain maximum body size and are able to reach age where they can represent and show their maximum antler size. It's as simple as that. Now think about this. How could I give you a certain percentage of woods or fields or anything else when we can go into Wisconsin where there's lots of Boone and Crockett bucks and the vegetation composition is totally different than if we drop down into south-central Kansas and there's no forest whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so the mixture of forest to field and brush and all that you, you you can't say that it needs to have certain percentage of this, certain percentage of that. Just look at it as a as a much more simple concept. Adequate cover, adequate food to allow them to reach maximum body size and maximum antler size if they reach you know an appropriate age. Um, it, you you just can't really look at it any other way. And then I, I, and it's funny because I was in a conversation similar earlier today where someone was talking about where they needed X amount of mature forest in Pennsylvania for acorn production and, uh, you know, the the uh, forbs that are growing in the woods during the springtime, how nutritious they were, et cetera, et cetera. We only get a good acorn year about uh, one or two years out of five. If mature woods are that important, then what are the deer doing during those three or four years when we don't hardly have any acorns? What about those deer in Kansas where there's there's no acorns in certain portions of Kansas, no oak trees? How about South Texas? Ever seen any mature forest down in South Texas? You've seen lots of big deer down there, though. So, again, you can have big deer with mature woods, if the mature woods are managed in a certain way and if there's other vegetation types along with the mature woods, but you don't have to have mature forest in order to have uh, good deer habitat. That that makes a lot of sense. My question then is, though, how does someone go about auditing their own property or trying to quantify, you know, what the the right move is on their own unique piece. How do you go about figuring out what that optimum level of food versus cover to manage and, and, and get your deer to you know, the best health as possible and to that adequate carrying capacity? How do, how can the average guy go about figuring that out? Cause it kind of seems like a, from a high level makes a lot of sense, but how do I actually do it on the ground? Yeah, that's, it, it's a good 
question, but it's very complex in that every property is different and different regions are very different. And deer home ranges are going to vary at least somewhat from uh, place to place. But in a nutshell, when I go to a property and I'm helping someone who is truly concentrating on deer, the first thing I identify is, you know, number one, their objectives, and and then what is on the property with respect to the habitat composition, you know, how much woods, how much fields, how much agriculture, etc. And then look at the forage base, how much forage is available, naturally occurring forage, what's going on around the property. It needs to fit in with what the person is doing on this property. That's always a limitation. Uh, you know, if you have five or 8,000 acres, that's one thing, but especially for, you know, the poor soul is trying to manage, you know, 20, 80 acres, 150 acres, even 300 acres, whatever. I mean, they're, they're highly susceptible to what the neighbors are doing. So that cannot be overstated how important it is to look at what the neighbors are doing, try to work with them, and try to look at what's being provided outside your property uh, boundaries, and then what you need to provide inside the property boundaries. And that's really important to look at an aerial photo and see, okay, where is the cover? Where is the food? Lots of times where the cover is, you actually don't need cover there. You would be better off with food there. And, and many times where there is food or where there is some kind of field, really you would be better off with some good cover there. So think about the arrangement of cover versus food what's going on on surrounding properties, and then we drop down at the property level and get outside and look around on the ground. And uh, one of the first things that I do is, of course, ask them about any records they may have on deer density, whether that be uh, harvest records or whether that be, of course, some survey that they've done with cameras or, or whatever else. Get a feel for how many deer are there. Look at the plants. I can look at various plants and see which ones are eaten and which ones are not, and the extent to which they're, they are eaten. Obviously, you're going to see, you know, uh, get some feel with the density of tracks around in certain areas. You know, you get a feel for about how many deer you're talking about. And then you start looking at uh, what the condition of the understory is in the woods. You know, if I'm in the eastern United States where there are woods, what kind of plants are there, what kind of forage is there, what kind of cover is under there, for example, for, for fawning. Uh, usually, usually, it, it's, it's poor to bad, and there's lots of work that could be done to the woods to improve that. And then it, you uh, get outside the woods and you look around in fields, and so often they're either hay fields or they're just old fields with a base of non-native perennial grasses, whether that's tall fescue or brome grass or if you're down south, Bermuda grass or whatever the case may be, you've got to get rid of that. You get rid of that and by default, instantly you've increased the forage availability by at least tenfold just by killing the 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 unneeded grass that is keeping everything else from growing. So there's lots of little simple things that can be done to really increase the quality of forage and the quality of veg of, uh, of cover that's available on the property. So 
with I feel like I probably rambled a little bit there, but it's that's a complex question with you know lots of ifs and thens. <laughs> right. So what you're kind of, what you're trying to say there is no magic equation like x plus y equals z type of scenario but in order to you know you do your research projects and in order to hit your goal of you know z equals big racks big bodies you know the the maximum potential for those two things how much trial and error can one person expect to have to go through or upping something or taking something down a notch to, to reach that maximum potential? Not trying to be facetious, but uh, most likely for the rest of their life or as long as they're <laughs> in this. Right. Um, I, I tell people all the time, habitat management is not an event. That the, It is a way of life. The, the vegetation is going to continue to change until Gabriel blows his horn. And you've got to be there to manage that and get that steered in a direction that is suitable for that species. And, you know, for example, we go back to the to the woods or open area, and, and we're in, you know, again, uh, a pick on south-central Kansas. That's a, a, a really nice place to be. But you're out there. Another factor is, okay, what is the current land use? Are they grazing it? Are they haying it? Uh, does the landowner have an uncle that's using it for this, that? There, there's always a restriction on some property. I, I have no idea how many properties I've been to. A lot all over the place. I have yet to visit one property. I've never visited one, ever, that there isn't some kind of restriction that keeps you from going full bore as far as you can go. Most often it's money, but almost as often it's something related to money, such as, well, we really need to grow this, and we got to grow hay over here, and we need cows over there, and we really like to see those woods in this condition, or uh, uh my brother, he really likes to mow. He likes to see it clean. You know, there's always, always something. And it's usually, uh, you know, a somewhat difficult process to, to try and work around what that or those somethings are. But as long as you have good cover that is relatively dense from about four or five feet tall and down, and you have lots of good food, and it's uh, placed strategically, both with regard to holding the deer on your property and with regard to your hunting success, all of which is really figured out on an aerial photo rather than on the ground, at least initially, uh, you're going to be in good shape. So if anybody tries to tell you what percentage of woods or what percentage of, of uh, fields that you need to be optimum, I would look at that with a raised eyebrow and, uh, and then start to question it a little bit. So, so I guess continuing down this line of thought, then, if if I'm a property owner, I'm looking at my property. I think if I had to really dumb it down, oversimplify, and correct me if you think these are not the right categories, but if I had to oversimplify the categories of habitat that I might want to consider, and we'll just assume this is a property that has all the above. Let's say there's timber management, maybe early successional habitat, and then potentially food plots. If we were to break it down to those three categories, which would you say is the most important, just on average, to start thinking about? Because I think a lot of people, when they think habitat, 
projects, a lot of people jump to food plots. That's kind of the sexy thing to think about and to do and plan and put in. Is that where you think someone should jump first? And I, and I know this is going to come down to a, you know, parcel by parcel. It's all, you know, different for each person. But if you wanted to right now, if we could start the conversation in one of those three categories that you deem the most important, at least for us to discuss, which would which would those be? If you're in the eastern United States, on most properties, it's going to be your woods. Because on most properties that are managed for deer, that's what comprises a majority of the property. It always, and I, don't know, I shouldn't say amuses me, but it all, I always find it curious why somebody wants to manage their property, but they only want to manage about 2% of it. I mean, th- think about that. Just think about that for a second. You really want to maximize your property for deer, but all you're concerned with is planting some food plots. And rarely <laughs> does anybody plant any more than, you know, 2 or 3% of their uh, property in food plots. Yes, I've been to some that, you know, they have 25 to 30%, you know, planted in food plots, but uh, it's, it's, it's not necessary. And it is so much cheaper and efficient to manage woods and fields for deer than it is to manage food plots. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of food plots. I just wrote a book, another book on, on food plots, and they can help you get to that next level with regard to nutrition. But you've got to have a base. If you don't have that base and you're trying to manage your deer exclusively on food plots, believe me, you're going to be frustrated. So so let's start there then. Let's start with timber and then open area successional habitat. What should a deer hunter, deer manager be thinking about when it comes to managing their timber? How do they audit whether their timber is high quality or not? And then if there needs to be improvements, can you can you share with us some, some thoughts on how you might be able to go about doing that? If they are wanting to manage specifically for deer, if the tree value is not what's important, but the deer is what's important, then it's very simple. It all comes down to sunlight. And so look at your property without seeing the trees. Try to envision this. You're looking across your property and you're in the middle of the woods. Try to see that. Just just remove the trees from your sight. Now what do you see? Whether you're standing in the woods or whether you're standing in a field, that should be the same. Does that make sense? So you're saying there should be a lot. So I've of... got I've got vegetation that's anywhere from three to five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a starting point. That's the cover I need, and by default, for a majority of the plants, it's going to be some kind of decent forage. Some is always better than none, at least for the vast majority of species. But if I've got cover that is that tall in my woods, bam, the deer are in there. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to run through my woodlot to get to the other side where there's a thicket. Do you follow me? Mm-hmm. Again, look at your woods without seeing the trees. The tr- all the trees are doing is blocking the sunlight, and they're providing a, a boost of acorns every once in a while. And, that, and that's the way that should be viewed, just uh, a, a boost of, of energy in, in the fall uh, occasionally. Congratulations but you can manage deer at the same level without acorns. The The forage that is underneath, by far, by far, is more important 
than the acorns that are produced every once in a while. Now, do I manage for acorns also? Of course I do because I have oak trees, you know, in these stands. And so why shouldn't I try to get that extra boost out of them? That should be viewed the same as your food plots helping you give a little boost at different times of the year. So I'm managing my, my fields with, uh, and, and, and the fields are the early successional component, that herbaceous uh, plant community. You know, that's not a young forest, you know, by the way. You know, you got a, a two- or three- or four-year-old regenerating stand that's not early succession that's a young forest and when we talk about early succession we're talking about herbaceous plant communities that are out there in the field we get rid of the rank perennial grass we got a variety of forbs and uh, maybe some scattered shrubs and that kind of thing coming up it's uh, four or five feet tall it's perfect cover deer walking around in the daylight Uh, they're perfectly covered up um, they're they're feeding around the entire time. They're bedding in there. Uh, they're bedding in there during the summertime. They're fawning in there. They uh, are are bedding in those fields in the wintertime, especially during the day when they get good direct solar radiation. And then we get over into the woods or the draws, brushy areas, and that's where you work on having good thick cover uh, for escape. And uh, and you can either manage those areas where it's kind of moving around, you know, cutting different areas at different times to have that thick vegetation coming in. Or if you don't have that much property, you can burn, for example, those areas where you got good thick woody cover when it starts to get to that point where you can see, oh, let's say, you know, 20 yards or so, it's time it's time to burn and set that back and so then all that stuff re-sprouts and and you don't lose a year in your cover it's it's right back to where it was it re-sprouts vigorously grows very quickly you know on a vast majority of sites of course there's always some exceptions to this but on a majority of sites and and then you can maintain that that good escape cover just in one particular area if you want can you elaborate on how to safely manage a prescribed fire like that in the timber to achieve that outcome that you just you just mentioned there because i think for a lot of guys and gals that's a little bit intimidating but i know that there's mm-hmm. so many benefits to doing that can you walk us through what goes into that uh, again mark you're asking questions that uh would take a, a lot of time to answer but i'll try to be as succinct <laughs> as possible number one and i have to say this it's uh it, it should be automatic you have to have a burn plan in which you are stating your objectives and then you are outlining how you're going to do this and you are involving people who know what they're doing if you don't know what you're doing okay so i'm gonna say that's that's a given all right so i won't go into all the safety and whatever whatever mm-hmm. um of course you need a fire break around the area that you're burning a fire break most often is created with a tractor and a disc or a bulldozer. It might be a road. It might be a creek. It might be a field on one side of the woods that's been uh, plowed or disced or whatever. Or if you're in the woods, what we do more than anything else, uh, a couple of us, and, and me included, I don't, don't just put these on the technicians' backs, but <laughs> we will put backpack blowers on our back, walk down through the woods, and literally, in uh, oh, 45 minutes to an hour's time, you can have a nice six, eight-foot-wide fire break 
where the leaves are all blown out of the way right down to uh, uh, to the soil, which obviously doesn't burn. And, you know, that is the fire break. And you can have that connecting where there's a road or a creek or uh, whatever the case may be. And that's how you contain the fire. Then, of course, you only burn when uh, the weather allows you to. So you have to look at the weather days in advance, and you're targeting the forecast with regard to how many days since a rain, um, the temperature, the relative humidity, and the wind. And so, in essence, you want to burn on a bluebird day, not a cloudy day. If you burn on a cloudy day, you're probably going to have problems with smoke, and uh, more times than not, the fine fuel moisture will be relatively high and so you're just going to produce more smoke and you don't get as good of a burn and and you want to always get that smoke up and off of the area and and there's something on the fire weather forecast called a mixing height that you pay attention to uh with with an unstable atmosphere where that smoke will rise vertically very fast and then uh you have those transport winds way up there you know 1,800, 2,500 feet to transport the smoke and, and get it off the site. So a bluebird day, relative humidity, you know, usually somewhere between 30 and 40 percent, and uh, uh, a wind, you know, in-stand um, wind at, at, you know, that's hitting you in the face at about 2 to 5 miles an hour. So then we go in and we light the fire on the downwind side of where we're going to burn, immediately adjacent to the fire break. And so your flame links are only, you know, six, eight inches tall. And you have a line of fire, and it is backing against the wind because the wind is in your face, correct? Are you following me? Mm-hmm. You let that burn slowly with a backing fire. It's very safe. Uh, you're not wanting to damage the trees that you have not killed or cut down, and so you don't want a hot fire. You don't want an intense fire. You let that back through the area that you're burning. It's very safe. It's moving against the wind. It's moving slowly. Um, you can speed that up by running some strips of fire perpendicular to your line of fire, that's called a flanking fire. Uh, you also could use a, a strip heading fire, and that's where you walk in front of the, the fire line, the firing front, with your drip torch, and you might walk out there 50 feet or so and walk uh, parallel to the, uh, firing line, the fire line and let that strip of fire then blow with the wind into uh, that backing fire line. That's called a strip heading fire. But usually just let the fire back through the area. You might use some flank fires. Uh, take your time. Let the fire do its thing. As long as you're getting the cambium layer, which is that layer just inside the bark of those little uh, saplings and seedlings in the understory, as long as you're heating them up to about 145 degrees, that's that's not that hot, okay? It doesn't take 1,450 degrees, just 145 degrees, you've top-killed them. And so you're continually setting back, setting back, setting back that growth in the stand to keep it at a level that 
is providing good cover for deer, providing forage for deer. You know, once that leaf structure gets up there six feet or so, you, you no longer have uh, forage for deer. And once it gets up to that level, it's shading out everything on the ground. And so it's important. It's 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 necessary to continually uh, burn these areas to set back the successional process and uh, make sure the sunlight is, is, is hitting the ground and stimulating the vegetation. How would you say that a prescribed fire improvement compares to the quality of habitat you create with another timber improvement practice such as hinge cutting or selective cutting or clear cutting or anything like that? I mean, if you had to rank, I suppose, your tools, how would you, how would you do that? Well, think about it. Both of them are, are all of those are using the same thing, which is what? Sunlight. That's exactly right. And so if you thin the trees with your chainsaw, which is necessary before you start using fire, because if you use, a, if you use fire in a closed canopied stand that is not allowing, you know, at least 20 perhaps 30% of sunlight coming through, then you're not going to stimulate the uh, vegetation in the understory. There's just too much shade. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if you go in and you thin the trees, and whether you girdle and spray the trees or whether you hinge cut or whether you cut them down, how long will that sunlight last before the regenerating trees grow up and prevent the sunlight from hitting the ground? How long do you think? Several years. That's right. And in the eastern United States, it's, it's, it's amazing. Very, very consistently, it's going to be six to eight years. <laughs> so we target seven years as what we call the maximum fire return interval. So with that being said, you're asking me to rank those. Had I rather go in and burn my stand every five to seven years, or had I rather go in with a chainsaw and cut down more trees as frequently as needed? That's up to you. Now, one thing I can do with fire that you cannot do with a chainsaw is stimulate the herbaceous plants in the understory. If you're only cutting with a chainsaw on most sites, you're going to be dominated by woody species, woody browse. Where you're using fire, you can turn much of that woody composition into herbaceous composition, and that's going to mean drastic improvements in the nutritional quality. Most of the woody species are going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 18% crude protein. Most of the herbaceous species that you would be maintaining with fire are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 18 up to uh, you know 34, 35% crude protein and m much more digestible on average. Hmm. Can, you, can you ever have too much of that type of habitat? I mean, uh, when we talked, you talked earlier about the importance of properly thinking through how all the different pieces of a property work together from a hunting standpoint, strategy standpoint, if I've got timber spread out across my property, would you tell me I should be improving it in this type of fashion all as much as I possibly can? Or would you rather have some areas that are improved, other areas not so much, maybe so that we minimize deer travel in certain areas and maximize it in others? That's two different approaches. 
my my approach is to maximize things. Literally, when I'm riding around on ATVs with landowners, we are constantly pointing out what needs to be done. Why would you have this area that is not productive? And there's a term that's been coined for that. It's called usable space. If it's not usable for a deer as cover or food, then in my opinion, something needs to be done about that. Now, I realize that there is, uh, you know, an approach that you just mentioned to think about deer travel and them not see you or whatever, but that is not an issue with me because I know how to position roads, paths, etc., work with the wind. So, Everywhere on the property is usable uh, for deer. And it doesn't have to be usable for the same thing, but I find it wasteful if there's an area of the property that deer you know, are not using because there's no cover and no food. I, I, for me, I don't see any reason for that unless that's you know, the driveway or something around the shop or, or whatever the case may be. Okay, fair enough. That, that makes sense. I, I, can definitely see, I can definitely see that point of view. And I'll I'll tell you something else that I've kindly called that is uh, odd area management. I've never seen or heard anybody else mention it, but it's something that I routinely talk about as you're driving around and you're along the edge of a field or the edge of the woods. You know, I ask guys, why why have you not sprayed all this tall fescue that's along the edge of the field or there at the edge of the woods? I mean, there's there's a uh, 15 or 20 feet from right here over out of the edge of the woods. And, you know, they'll just look at you, oh, well, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's just that little bit. That's true. It's just that little bit. But think about this. If you add up all of the little bit all over your property, you'd be surprised at what percentage of the property is in that little bit that is not managed, especially if your property is broken up uh, considerably, you know, with woods and fields and agriculture and, and different vegetation types. So, so let's let's talk about these little bits and these open areas and such. You talked a little bit about earlier the importance of your open areas and managing old fields and everything like that. I know there's a lot to it, but for someone who maybe has not started diving into that at all, they they know about food plots, they've dabbled maybe in food plots, but they have not been managing these fields to be maximized in nutrition and or cover what does somebody need to know to start managing their oil fields and creating optimal early successional habitat where do we start the number one thing number one thing get rid of the non-native perennial grasses if you're in the northeast that's going to be tall fescue orchard grass and timothy if you're in the mid-south it's going to be tall fescue and orchard grass. If you're in the south, it's going to be tall fescue, Bermuda grass, and Bahia grass. And from the mid-south down during the uh, summertime, you're also going to have Dallas grass in many of those areas. If you're in the Midwest, uh, Missouri, East Kansas, portions of Iowa, etc., out through there, southern Michigan, uh, you're going to have tall fescue. You're going to have a lot of brome grass, especially smooth brome, but you can have other brome grasses as well. Uh, get rid of spray and kill all of the perennial 
non-native cool season grasses. Uh, best approach is to do that in the fall after you've gotten a couple of good frosts. After those frosts, all of the warm season plants go dormant, right? Mm-hmm. Once they're dormant, then you can use a broad-spectrum herbicide, such as glyphosate, to selectively kill the perennial cool-season grasses that are vigorously growing and photosynthesizing at that time in preparation for their winter senescence. Although they're cool-season, they also will go dormant during midwinter, and so that is the optimum time to kill them because they're transporting all of those nutrients from the leaves down into their roots in preparation for winter senescence. If you spray them in the spring, you can get what appears to be a good kill, but you don't actually get as good of a kill on the root systems, and within two years, you'll, you'll likely see 30, 30 to 40% of that grass cover uh, back out there. So you're saying by doing it later in the fall after those frosts, you can apply, like you mentioned, like glyph, which would, be, which would kill almost anything except for the fact if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at that time of year, the types of grasses that you want to survive will be already going dormant, so they won't draw in that glyph and it won't have that negative impact, but it will kill the grasses that you do not want, those perennial grasses, I believe you said. Is that, is that right? That is correct. Unless the plant is photosynthesizing, the glyphosate is not going to kill it. Glyphosate has no soil activity. And so if the plant is dormant or if the seed has not germinated, an application of glyphosate is not going to impact it. So rather than needing to go spot treating these with a little backpack sprayer, you could go out there with your ATV sprayer almost and, and, and spray the whole area in a much faster fashion, it seems like. Absolutely. And, and for most of these fields, it would need a broadcast application anyway because they're covered with these grasses. Mm-hmm. And while you're at it, use your spray gun and spray all those odd areas as well. And, and I, at a minimum, Mark, at a minimum by default, just by doing that, you have increased the forage value at, of, of that field at least 10 times, and usually a whole lot more than that. And you have immediately increased the cover value because of what's going to germinate and grow after all that rank grass cover is killed. Because all that grass cover, you know, it, it's a sod, and it's preventing the seed bank from germinating and growing. And so you've got, uh, it's it's like Christmas. Once you kill that grass cover, you've got all this different stuff that's just popping out. You never know what you got. You know, it it might be something, you know, sucky like a tire or whatever, but it might be something really good, you know, a new shotgun. You never know. So you you just spray all that cover. You pull the, what I call, you pull the carpet off of the field and get rid of it. And then you let all that stuff underneath pop up and grow. Now, some of it you're not going to like. You know, if you're out in the Midwest, it might be teasel. If you're down south, it might be sickle pod. If you're in the northeast, it might be curly dock. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, plants out there that you don't want that are going to respond. Of course, there's going to be some grasses, too, Johnson grass. On many of these fields, when you kill, you know, the brome grass or the fescue or whatever, there's going to be, and on some of them, there'll be an explosion of Johnson grass. That's all right. Remember, this is a way of life. Uh, when that Johnson grass gets up there at about 18 inches tall, go over it with an application of, you could use glyphosate, but I would probably use Plateau. 
That's a, a broad-spectrum selective herbicide that will kill the Johnson grass and won't kill most of the other plants that you're wanting to retain. So, you know, if anyone thinks that they can just go out there and, you know, do something with, quote, their habitat, you know, once or twice and it be good, it's just that's incorrect. Uh, habitat management is a way of life. It's something that you're going to have to get into. And don't be discouraged just because you see a plant that isn't good for deer. Go out there and kill it. You know, if you enjoy killing deer, you ought to enjoy killing plants <laughs> that, that deer don't like. So. There you go. Now, I think when a lot of people think about providing nutrition for their deer, right, they jump to food plots, clover, beautiful little green fields full of this lush, high-protein food. But from what I've heard and, and from people like you, there's a huge nutri nutritional component to these types of these old fields. If you if managed properly, like you discussed, they provide tremendous forage value. That's is that correct? Uh, absolutely, in in a great big way. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. It, I just got an email here. Let's see, about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> These are the, now you don't talk about brand new hot off the press is not even on the press. I just got the email from the lab. Uh, I just got this from the lab an hour and a half ago, and uh, I'm looking at at the Excel spreadsheet and the graphs. And uh, we did we put in some treatments where we mowed portions of fields, and we burned portions of fields. And I'm looking at the crude protein and acid detergent fiber content as well as the uh, percentage of phosphate, potassium, and calcium. So I'll just run through a couple of these. Uh, Carolina geranium, 21% crude protein, only 9% acid detergent fiber. 0.5% phosphorus, that's outstanding, especially on some of these poor soils that we have. Uh, let's see, where's another one that you would recognize? Here's a goldenrod, 32% crude protein, wow. only 11.8% acid detergent fiber, 0.7% uh, Phosphorus, it's outstanding. Um, of course, blackberry, everybody's familiar with blackberry. 25% crude protein, 10% acid detergent fiber. The, the percentage of acid detergent fiber, you want that to be low. In, in anything less than about 35% represents a highly digestible forage. So th hmm. these, are, these are outstanding forages. But keep in mind when we're collecting them. This is in the spring. We just collected these and sent them to the lab because we want to see what is available to does that are late in gestation and about to give birth. This right now is the period when the highest nutrition is required by both does and bucks. You know, bucks here, they started growing their antlers uh, a few weeks ago, and so you want them to have optimum nutrition right now. Right now is the time. We're, we're in uh, early to mid-May, and, and they need the best that they can possibly have right now. These plants meet or exceed any food plot planting that you would plant, okay? Pick one. Yeah. 
Um, here's daisy fleabane, 21%. And I'm mentioning species that, that deer highly select. I'm not talking about plants that they don't eat. You know, we're we're looking at all plants, all kinds of plants out there, but I'm specifically looking at the ones that, that they are selecting in the fields. And, you know, we record whether the plant is eaten or not and what extent, et cetera, as I've mentioned for the food plot stuff as well. So, uh, again, you are missing the boat terribly by overlooking your food. I mean, the the poor guy out there that's got some, you know, old field dominated by fescue and got some little trees growing up is 10 acres that they're bush hogging every year. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, there's, there's virtually zero food value out there. Virtually zero, 10 acres. He can have 4,000 pounds per acre just by spraying the fescue. Now that's going to be a good one, but, but, easy almost anywhere uh one to two thousand pounds and you know it it might take uh of course a little bit of effort with regard to spot spray and some problem plants like i mentioned if you know johnson grass explodes you know don't think you can just spray the fescue and stop right there as i mentioned it's an ongoing process but uh the, the value that you can get from these fields is is truly outstanding and and it's just really disappointing that more people don't understand that or don't take advantage of it so would you say for someone who's on a budget and they have some type of old field like this and they're they've been thinking well they want to put a food plot in would you tell that person on average their better bet for on a budget in that type of situation would be don't plow it under and plant something take advantage of what you already have optimize it and create great habitat in that way no i would tell anybody that regardless of how much money they have <laughs> right and and think about this <laughs> think think about this what are you going to plant that has more than you know 25 30 percent crude protein and uh 0.4 0.5 0.7 phosphorus and uh, one to two percent calcium. I mean, these are outstanding forages. Now, I'm not saying don't plant food plots, especially if you have the means to do so. Now, here's the trick that, in my opinion, few people understand. Now you look at okay, when is nutrition waning or limiting on my property? Now, according to what you have out there in the fields or according to what you have in your woods and when it's growing and when it's providing what, that's what you have to identify. When is nutrition limiting on your property for your for the for the deer that's on your property? Then that's what you use to decide what you need to plant. You need to plant something in your food plot then that is filling in that natural nutritional gap. Follow me? Mm-hmm. Definitely. You don't just plant, you know, whatever, whatever, because, you know, you saw somebody on TV doing that. You know, what you see people doing on TV, I hope this isn't a revelation to anybody, but <laughs> it's based on sponsorship. <laughs> you know second. what I'm saying? I mean, let, let's just Wait be real, real honest here. So, and, and and many products are outstanding. I'm not speaking for or against any product, but don't be misled 
by what you see on TV and, and in the magazines. I mean, let, don't don't just keep the wool over your eyes. Pull your head out of the dirt. Think about your property and what you have available. When natural nutrition is limiting, hello, that's when you need to fill a gap. Okay, now choose a planting whose natural production is greatest during that period. I mean, th- this is not rocket science. So, okay, so let's continue from there then. Let's say we've reached this point where we've we've been optimizing our timber, we're spending time on our old old fields, now we find where these gaps are. What other considerations should I be thinking through before planning my food plots now? Let's say it's a first-time food plotter who's thinking through all these things for the first time. What are those first things or questions they need to answer before starting on a food plot project? I would go back to my photo. Go back to your photo and look where you won't cover and look at where you won't food. Where you want food is not necessarily where there is an existing field. Okay, that's that's the first step, determining where to plant your food plots. You determine where to plant your food plots according to your photo, not according to you standing out in, in on the property and looking across a field. Because too many times, well, obviously you don't want to plant where it's adjacent to a road and, and usually not where it's adjacent to a property line or whatever. But you've, you've got to put together the puzzle for your property with an eye towards the arrangement of the cover and food. Now, here's where the art comes in. And you're putting together an arrangement for what? For your hunting success. Okay? We're, we all want to kill something. We're not just doing this because we want to see them healthy. Yes, we like them and we want to see them healthy, but we want to see them healthy, let's be honest, so we can kill them. And so as you are setting this up, you want to do so for your hunting success. So with that in mind, you determine the places that you want to plant. Um, What I would recommend is also to look at a soils map as you do this. Your soils map can help you determine some of these places, especially, you know, if if you've got several places where you might plant. And over here's a place where the soils are much better than over there. That might help you determine where you need a larger feeding plot as opposed to a smaller hunting plot. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you're looking at your photo, deciding where to put what, looking at your soils map, deciding where it would be best to put larger fields because where the soils are better, that means you will have to spend less money on amendments to achieve the yield that you were looking for. And something very interesting that we're doing right now, we're all in the middle of it, is looking at this relationship between plant nutritional quality and soils. And it is extremely interesting. Most people, and myself included, would intuitively think, okay, why do we uh, put out fertilizer to uh, make plants more nutritious? No. We put out fertilizers and amend the soil with lime and you know other amendments so we can achieve a higher yield, more tonnage or more bushels of grain per acre, etc. There is no producer who fertilizes fields to make his soybeans more nutritious. 
they fertilize their fields to get a higher yield bushels per acre of beans out of their soybeans. So don't be mistaken thinking that your food plots are going to be more nutritious just because you add fertilizer to them. You're going to have you're going to uh, obtain greater yield out of them, which is very important because you don't want to have to plant any more than you have to for the expense of planting and managing uh, a food plot. Uh, correct? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, but there is a certain amount of of soil nutrients that are needed for that plant to grow, and so you can get uh, lots of food plot. Uh, plantings to grow in poor soils, but you're not going to grow very much. And if you take a plant sample of your soybeans that are only, you know, if they're healthy and they're only up there about, uh, you know, 12 inches tall and you pull out those tender leaves and, and the ends of the stem and you send in, send those into the lab and you get the, uh, report back it's going to be outstanding for it quality. It's just that if you have amended the soil, now your soybeans, according to what variety you're planting, of course, is, is going to be uh, three feet tall. And so instead of 200 pounds per acre, you've got four or 5,000 pounds per acre. Well, I can definitely see how that makes a big difference when you think about that way. Well, think about your nutritional carrying capacity and how many deer you can support. Mm-hmm. So, so what, when it comes to now, we're thinking through these types of questions. Now, we're thinking about actually preparing a food plot location. Is there any common mistakes you've seen, or anything that maybe is above the normal advice that you found from your research and experience when it comes to how to properly prepare a food plot location and seabed, or or amending the soil? Any any couple things that stand out there that people should know about if you're planting with uh, a no-till drill your seed bed preparation is just spraying the existing vegetation and so as long as that vegetation is you know and i'm talking about herbaceous vegetation uh figuring that you've taken care of those small trees or something coming in of course you're going to have to get all that removed with mechanical you know uh equipment or whatever but uh you spray the field with the appropriate herbicide you know almost always glyphosate to kill everything down and then uh you wait for the soil conditions to be appropriate which usually is is very moist so you can get the uh the proper seeding depth according to what you're planting well you always want the proper seeding depth regardless of what you're planting but for some uh plants such as you know soybeans they can be, or cowpeas, for example, you know, an inch and a half to two inches deep. But I, I definitely, definitely want them an inch deep. Uh, you know, and then, of course, for smaller seeds, especially clovers, uh, even chicory, joint vetch, etc., I, I don't want that any deeper than a quarter of an inch, it's essentially sitting on top of the ground. And so your seedbed preparation when you're planting with a no-till drill is simply to control uh, competition. Now, if you're planting conventionally, you know, by by disking and covering the seed with a disc or what some people call a do-all or what have you, then uh, you need to, to work up the soil to where you have, for most things, a fine seed bed. 
And then you have to pay particular attention to how deep you're planting it, and that's going to be more difficult with conventional equipment as opposed to no-till planting, which means for many things you need to plant more seed per acre than you would if you were no-till drilling because your seeding depth is not as precise, and so your germination rate and your seedling survival is not going to be as good. And then finally, after you've prepared a really good seed bed, and, and of course, beforehand you've amended it properly with you know lime fertilizer whatever and especially if we're talking about small seeded species it is critically important to go over it with a cultipacker something that provides good firm seed to soil contact and i'm not talking about a drag a drag is something that you pull across the field to help smooth out the seed bed and break up clods and that kind of thing but a cultipacker actually firms up the seed bed and provides you with good firm seed to soil contact which definitely improves uh seedling survival rates so so the idea i know a lot of people talk about using those two things interchangeably like if you don't have a cultipacker you can, a cultipacker you can drag an old chain link fence or something like that are you, is it really not going to achieve nearly as as much of what you want to with a dragon that way or or is it still a poor man's version that can kind of get the job done um, no, it's not a poor man's version. It's just using uh, the incorrect piece of equipment. Uh, a, a drag does not achieve the same effect as a cultipacker, period. If, if I don't have a cultipacker, then I'm going to go over the field, usually with a four-wheeler, mm-hmm. and firm it up with a four-wheeler tires. And try it yourself. Go out there and top sow your clovers, and then ride across it with your four-wheeler uh, about every, you know, five or six feet or whatever, come back two weeks later and look at the green stripes. There will be green stripes wherever your tires are, and in between there will be, of course, some clovers or whatever you planted coming up, but it won't look as good as where those tires went across. I can attest to what you're saying because that is I, I do not have a cultipacker, and so I do exactly that. I ride over every square inch that I can of my food plots with my tractor tires very you know, cussing at myself for not just buying a cultipacker the whole time. And then I have seen where if I do miss an area, you can absolutely tell. You can yeah, definitely and, and, see it. You know, I'm not saying you need to pack the soil down. I, I, I don't want to pack the soil down. And, you know, I've got uh, some big tractors that, you know, I would not do that with because that's that that's too much weight. I'm not trying to compact the soil. I'm just trying to provide good, firm seed-to-soil contact. Just, just firming it up because if you don't do that, think of this. When conditions are, are right, the seed germinates, and you've got a little rootlet that's coming out of the seed. And if it can't get good immediate contact to mineral soil and it's kind of loose, you're not going to have as good a seedling survival as if it's you know got good firm contact and that little rootlet can go right down into mineral soil and start getting the, uh, the water and nutrients that it needs. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, now, I've got a question for Dan over there. You are a first-time food plotter, so as, as you're hearing Craig walk through all these things, from your perspective as that person who hasn't yet dove into this at all, what are you thinking? What are your what's where are you still confused? What's your question about this? Because I'm I'm hearing all this and I've done it before and I'm familiar with it, but from your perspective, where's where's your head at? Where are your questions at? My my whole big 
thing that I'm going to have to focus on is the this area that I have is an old garden. It has been cleared and in, in, in a garden was placed there years ago where they grew vegetables. Now it hasn't – no one's taken care of this area for you know two years maybe, three years maybe. And there's now this weed bed basically of gra- or a, a grass. My whole thing is how am I going to get equipment down there to – get this grass out, you know, I'm going to spray it, I'm going to kill it. And I might even do a burn from the sounds of it. But I, I'm still curious on what needs to be done to remove that, that, I guess, first inches of where all the this bad grass is growing for me to be successful when I do plant my seeds. And you're going to plant conventionally? Uh, well, I'll probably plant broadcast style. Um, yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna disc up a seed bed, and then you're gonna uh, top sow the seed. Correct. Correct. Uh, what equipment do you have, uh, Dan? I mean, do you have a, a four wheeler with a, a disc, or some kind of planter, or a tractor and a disc, or or what? As of right now, I have. Two arms and a garden rake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, you, just want, and, you just want me to hang up? I'll, I can quit. It, I can leave. It, it, no, no. There, there is hope, uh, but it's a different style. What you're going to have to do is something called um, no-till top sewing. Okay. Okay. You're not going to no-till drill. You're going to no-till topsow. And you're going to be forced to use something that has small seed. If you no-till topsow large seed, such as, you know, as I mentioned, cow peas or corn or soybeans, what have you, it's going to lay there on the ground and rot. Okay. It, it needs to that those seed need to be covered, and you have no way to cover the seed. So what you're going to rely on is Mother Nature allowing the seed to sift down through dead and decaying organic material that you're going to spray and kill, and it'll finally get into a place where it can germinate and grow, and you can get a good stand out of that. But you're going to have to sow at approximately double the rate that you would if you were preparing a seed bed. Okay. And I can't sit here on the phone and tell you exactly what I would do in that field because I don't know what is in that field. But for most of those situations, uh, what I would do is so the, the, the best thing for those situations, small seed would be something like, of course, clovers, or during the warm season, where are you, Dan? Uh, Eastern Iowa. Eastern Iowa, okay. Well, uh, I would stick with uh, clovers, and later in the in the growing season, like in, in August, you also could uh, no-till top sow some brassicas, and, and, and they will come up. Uh, you can no-till top sow uh, some cereal grains. Uh, I would recommend an onless variety of wheat 
and that will that will that will do fairly well. The critical thing is you've got to control that vegetation, and what I like to do is about three weeks before I hope to see my planting germinate and come out, I will sow the seed at that time and then go through and spray the entire area with glyphosate. In three weeks' time, that material is going to die down and it's going to you know, be starting to fall down on the ground, uh, providing more organic material, and you'll see your planted uh, seeds starting to come out. Now, according to what the seed bank is, you know, you could have uh, some other stuff come out as well. And then you're going to be at the mercy of the seed bank with regard to what you can get rid of. Uh, with, with clovers, there's uh, some really good herbicides that you can use to attend to weed pressure. But, um, you know, that that's something that you'll have to attend to. So I would look at no-till top sowing and spraying at least three weeks prior to when I hope the seed would germinate and start to grow. Gotcha. Well, there you go, Dan. I, and I, of got, course, I got a list. And, of course, apply the appropriate amount of, of lime and, and fertilizer according to your soil test. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay, so you, you started walking us through some different forage options given Dan's set of circumstances. And you also alluded to this earlier, how you shouldn't just plant based on what you see on TV. A lot of people, you know, ask, what's, what should I plant in my food plot? And they expect there to be one single answer that's always going to be correct. And, of course, it's always going to be different based on your goals, your circumstances, and, and also different things like that. But could you walk us through at least the process that you think somebody should go through when trying to answer that question for themselves? What is the right thing to be planting? We've, we've already talked about looking for the gaps in nutrition across your property. I'm sure that's part of this, but is there anything else that somebody should be thinking about when trying to answer, what should I plant? Well, again, I would go back to what I mentioned earlier about looking at the property and identifying, you know, when those gaps are, and then I'm looking at what is providing food at that time. So uh, that's going to vary a little bit with regard to where you are in the country and, you know, the the growing season, of course. But just about everywhere, think about this, you tell me, when are bucks beginning to grow antlers where you live? April. April. And what if you're in Oklahoma? Beats me. <laughs> Same time. What about New York? Same time. Or even North Florida. You know, it, it's interesting that the timing of bucks growing antlers is relatively tight across the country as opposed to the timing of the rut. You ever thought about that? I, I, I think it's pretty, pretty interesting. It is interesting, right? So if I'm trying to plant something that is going to provide optimum nutrition for bucks. I'm looking at what's occurring on my property naturally, and I want to make sure that at that time uh, there is just plentiful high-quality forage. If there's not, you definitely need something that's going to fit that April, May, and early June window. Um, 
for most areas of the country, 90% of the antler growth is complete by August the 1st. So <laughs> a lot of people, you know, they'll plant soybeans, which I'm I'm big on planting soybeans for, for various reasons. But, you know, if you go in and drill your beans or plant your beans in early to mid-June, or let's say you planted them in mid-May, but you put a fence around them to keep deer out until late July. <laughs> what did you just achieve? <laughs> You've kept deer from eating the highest quality forage you have during the time that they need it the most. I mean, it's just it's just ultra curious to me. Why why would you do that? I mean, unless you're planting some little bitty plot, you know, for, for bow hunting or something like that, and you've got so many deer you can't even get a food plot to grow, which, you know, I would argue you have other problems then. But anyway, I want something during that uh, April to June time period and something that is really good regardless of where you go across the country is perennial clovers and chicory during that time. Um, another good forage during most of that time is some of the annual clovers. Uh, according to where you are, that may be uh, crimson, that may be arrowleaf, uh, that may be balanza, that may be berseem, and there are some cold-tolerant varieties of berseem. Don't overlook the uh, the annual clovers. They, they, they will have a place in the management strategy of food plot uh, strategy of most properties, you know, for deer. And if I'm needing something during the winter time, I'm concentrating on uh, a cool season grain along with annual clovers and, uh, of course, possibly various brassicas. The perennial forages are not producing forage during the winter time. Uh, literally, unless you're down south where you've got really, really mild winters, uh, well, most areas, the perennial clovers and chicory are, and, and alfalfa are either dormant, wilted down, or producing no more than literally 25 or 50 pounds per acre. During, during midwinter, they are not what you're looking for. You're looking for annual cool season cereal grains, especially oats and wheat. And in some areas of uh, really far north i would go as far as say cereal rye uh annual clovers and the and, and various brassicas and then during that summer period if you're down south i, I like uh joint vetch and, and alice clover i like soybeans and cowpeas almost anywhere but you've got to think about the growth cycle of these plants you're usually planting them you know it's going to differ you know in in latitude whether you're in uh Michigan or, or North Louisiana, of course, but typically you're talking about planting in, in May, early June, something like that. But those plants need a while before they're really uh, providing much production. And so your peak production is going to be August through September, according to, you know, what variety, et, et cetera. So that's an important time, especially for fawns. You know, after fawns are weaned, they're requiring a very high crude protein content, you know, like 19, 20, 21%. And so 
that's a time when those natural forages that we talked about earlier that are, you know, 25, 35% crude protein are very low, relatively low in uh, uh, nutritional value. Although many of them continue to produce leaves on the ends of the stems that are very high in, in, uh, in, in nutrients. And, and that's something else that we found very interesting looking at the difference in nutrition level of young leaves versus old leaves on given plants. But you've got to feel that window of times of the year when uh, nutrition is limited on your property. So as, you, as you've been discussing this, you've brought up a couple terms that people new to food plotting may not be familiar with, and that's annuals versus perennials and cool season versus warm season. Can you, can you help us better understand what those mean and then what are the right applications or, or the benefits to, to either or? An annual plant germinates, grows, flowers, produces seed, and dies in one year or within one year. A biennial species germinates, grows, for most of them will overwinter either with green leaves or a green rosette according to what plant you're talking about. And then it will uh, flower the next year, produce seed and die. A perennial species will germinate and grow most of them will flower their first year, produce seed, and then go dormant, and then arise again from their root system each year thereafter, according to which one you're talking about, for many years. So a perennial species continues to come back from the roots. An annual species relies on throwing off seed to, uh, to continue, you know, that species to persist, and a biennial species throws off the seed uh, in, in its second year. Warm season is, uh, I, I won't get into great detail, but in essence, uh, a majority of them grow and produce most of their growth during the warmer months of the year and flower and produce seed toward the end of summer and uh, fall. Cool season species grow during cooler months of the year, but not necessarily through the middle of winter, but certainly during the fall and spring months, and they typically flower and produce seed in spring or early summer. So the uh, the phenology, the timing of these plants is absolutely critical for you to understand in order to, one, put together a food plot mixture, and number two, meet the demands of when a nu- nutritional gap may occur. You know, it's, I, I said something about, you know, the commercial products. I, I'm, I'm neither positive or negative on them, but I look at them objectively. When I turn the bag upside down and look at the seed tag, and it's got warm season plants and cool season plants and forbs and grasses and a little of this and a little of that, you know, you can just flip that over and put it down. <laughs> they have put that mixture together for somebody out there is totally ignorant and they're going to plant it in a wet spot, a clay spot, a dry spot, a sandy spot in winter, summer, whenever, and they expect to see something come up. And, and, and they will. But oftentimes at least half of the contents in the bag is totally wasted because they're planting it on the wrong side or at the wrong time, whatever. If you understand what you're planting and why, then you're only going to have 
species in the mixture that fit the need and the time of when you're planting. And and your success is is far greater. So to the annuals versus perennials, again, what would be the benefits to using one over the other? Uh, I've certainly... I've certainly gone on this path, and I think I understand it, and, I, and I've been utilizing annuals to reach some of my goals and perennials for other goals. But for those that, that haven't maybe you know, try to understand that distinguishment and, and utilize that or, or choose which is the right of the two for their goals, what would that be? When would you use each in different applications? Um, if, if I'm up north, then... I'm using more perennials than annuals probably, and it's according to the property, but probably because perennial cool season species, ladino clover, all-site clover, alfalfa, chicory, etc., its peak production is May through July, early August. So although it's, it's called a cool, and it is cool season species, its peak production time is during the summer, and that's especially true in the northern latitudes. So the perennial cool season species act as a warm season forage. Then, if I'm up north, I'm also going to have either annual cool season species to fill any uh, nutrition gaps in winter, or I'm going to have something like soybeans and corn, which are warm season species, but they have food, you know, either the soybean seed or the corn grain that is available in fall and winter for a good energy source. And, of course, if you have soybeans, then obviously that provides an outstanding warm season forage source as well. And that's really the reason why soybeans, in my opinion, all things considered, soybeans have to be ranked number one of all food plot plantings because they provide such outstanding warm season forage as well as a fall and winter uh, source of energy in their beans. Mm-hmm. But but food pl- uh, soybeans are not you know a cure all for 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 everything. You're you're not going to have uh, soybeans available during that March April May time in in most areas of the country. You know way down south you can you know plant soybeans pretty early but still then they're just going to be tiny and trying to come out of the ground so during that uh late um or you know the the early fawning and and late just late gestation periods and the early fawning and that initial antler growing phase soybeans are providing nothing because they're not out there Mm -hmm. and is that that's probably somewhere where then like your perennial clover might fill that gap right that that's correct, or according to where you are, various annual clovers as well. And uh, you know, one of uh, a favorite mixture of mine is winter wheat with crimson clover and arrowleaf clover. And according to the situation, I might also add red clover with that. But the crimson clover and the and the wheat come out of the ground. You know, within with, with if there's moisture within two weeks after you plant it. And so you've got a, a grazable stand within four weeks. It goes right through the winter. It will continue to produce through the winter. And, it, and uh, the, the crimson clover is good up to about southern Pennsylvania, southern Michigan, you know, that latitude and, and down. 
and arrowleaf clover might be a, a touch lower than that. But those two grow through the winter. The crimson clover will flower and die in late April. At that time is when you really see the air leaf start to pop out and, you know, grow out of the, uh, the, the crimson clover. And at that time, the wheat is bolting and producing a seed head. If you've used an onless variety of wheat, or some people call it beardless, you know, those wheat seed heads that have those long, stiff, hair-like structures on it, those are called awns, okay. A-W-N. Do not plant uh, an awned variety of wheat. Plant onless uh, varieties of wheat. It's producing a seed head at that time. <coughs> Deer will eat those seed heads in the milk stage, and then they will eat those seed heads after they've dried. And on a per acre basis, you can get, you know, 1,000, 1,500 pounds of forage just out of the wheat seed heads. That's free energy. Why would you not take advantage of that? That's one reason why I tend to place wheat above oats and cereal rye because of the value of the wheat seed head. Now, deer will selectively choose of the cool season grains oats first cereal rye second, and wheat third. And then also if you have barley, it's it's way, way, way down. Uh, whenever we planted barley and wherever, deer don't touch it, but they will hammer the, the oats, the rye, and the wheat. And when I say rye, please know that I'm talking about annual rye, cereal rye. I'm not talking about rye grass. Mm-hmm. That's a completely different species and there is no situation whatsoever anywhere in which I would plant ryegrass. There's simply way, way too many other things to plant that are far better and that are much highly selected by deer uh, than, than ryegrass. And so even though oats is selected number one, cereal rye number two, and wheat number three, I typically go with wheat number one because, first off, the value of the seed head, but number two, if you have all three of those out there, you will see deer select one over the other over the other. But if you take one of them away, they will be eating the other two. If you take one of those away, they're going to be eating the one that's left <laughs> just as if you you had the other two. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, if you don't have oats or rye, they're going to eat wheat like they would oats or rye if, if they were there. Um but if they're together, they'll select the oats first. So if you're just trying to plant a highly attractive plot and you're not worried about carrying nutrition through the winter, oats is a, a perfectly fine thing to use. Uh, it, it's very attractive. It's an outstanding forage. You you know, amend the soil where you can get good production and uh, the nutritional value you're going to get easily in excess of 20% crude protein. And, and until the cool season grains begin to bolt, the acid detergent fiber content will be very low. But once those cool season grains, those grasses start to get large and begin to bolt, the deer use of them drop off precipitously. Now, a lot of people look at that, oh gosh, you know, they're not eating any of this. Uh, we just need to mow this to, you know, get some fresh growth. Well, if you're planting using wheat, and you have those clovers mixed in with it, you don't want to do that because the clovers are still in there, and that's providing really good, attractive, nutritious forage. 
plus the wheat then will produce that seed head that that deer then will come in and i mean it, it's amazing that you know the pictures that we have where we get down and take a picture you know about two feet off the ground it's just nothing but wheat stalks spikes all across the field with not one seed head on it, it it's 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 very attractive during that time may and june and and the air leaf is coming out the air leaf persists until july it'll start uh flowering in july and it'll finish up in late july so right there's a plot that i planted in early to mid september at this latitude it has provided outstanding forage in every month of the year through late july and then if i add red clover according to what latitude i'm at that red clover will persist until August. That is the only mixture that I'm aware of in all of our work that truly is a year-round food plot for deer. There is nothing else. There is no other mixture that I'm aware of that is truly year-round in terms of producing during every month of the year and have an adequate standing crop that is sufficient for pretty doggone heavy grazing every month of the year. Now, as you're talking about this mixture, I know that there are, and you, you kind of alluded to this already as well, that there are some things that mix well together. There's some things that don't, or they don't make sense to mix together at all. Um, are there any other, are there a handful or a couple different other mixtures that you found work well together for whatever goal it might be that you want to utilize as an example? Oh, yes. Uh, there's, there's lots of them. And uh, we've put them all in this food plot book. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I can't go through all these different mixtures, but you know, it's it's easy to get a hold of. You can go to the uh, the UT Extension and Publications site and order it. You can go to the Quality Deer Management Association website and 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 order it. And we've you know we put all of this together. And in this uh, edition here, I've put a uh, a plant ID guide in the back of it that shows nice full color pictures you know several pictures of each species so you can see what these plants are that might be growing in your food plots or in your in your fields how to identify them whether they're good for wildlife or not and if they're not what you might do use or spray to get rid of them that's perfect that that was exactly one of the things i was wondering about as we were talking through all these different aspects of habitats you know, how do you identify which ones are good which ones are bad what to deal with them and that's that sounds like a it, incredible it is resource. not easy to find that information and i get asked that all the time and it took to be quite honest with you a long time to put this together but uh and and you know there's there's still more that 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 uh i'd like to add and might do that in a in a later edition but this one i think i've got uh don't hold me to this but it's uh, it, it's more than 250 species that's in there, and uh, of course, it's not everything that you would find everywhere. But it's got uh, species and pictures in there from uh, everywhere, from Michigan and Iowa and Kansas to uh, Mississippi, the Mid South, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, throughout the eastern United States, across to the Great Plains. Wow. So in addition to the, the species identification and those things you just mentioned there, what else is in, is in the book? What else should we be looking for? Well, the the first uh, whole portion of the book is a guide to wildlife food plots. So it tells you 
everything from considerations in a, a food plot management plan, uh, considering your objectives, uh, everything about soil, soil nutrition, amending soils, everything about the various nutrients and lime. It's, there's a chapter, of course, on weed and pest control, all about the herbicides and pesticides. There's a chapter on deer, a chapter on turkeys, a chapter on uh, bobwhite, morning dove, waterfowl, a chapter on woods roads. Uh, there's appendices that provide planting charts and uh, charts on which species deer prefer, first, second, third, uh, appendices on the, the herbicides and pesticides, uh, and, and then you got the whole plant ID guide in the back of it. Wow. So, so this is a, I think this is a perfect place for us to wrap things up, too, because we've taken a lot of your time, and we appreciate that. But it sounds like if anyone out there, this conversation is that, that the, the appetizer, this is the beginning of your interest in food plots, or you know you want to do it, but you haven't really had what are, maybe the resources or the get-up-and-go to go do it now. If you've heard this and you're excited and you're motivated or you want that little extra, it sounds like this book of yours, Craig, is going to give them everything else they need to do to take from our conversation here as a starting point to then apply to everything else they need to, to go and actually put something in the ground that will make a, a positive difference for their deer. And I believe you're also there's also more information about the early successional habitat as well, correct? Yes. Uh, that, the, you know, that plant ID guide in the back, that is a guide to early successional plants. And there's information in there on, uh, of course, managing early successional areas. And, and we have other publications on that as well if uh, if somebody goes to my web page. Perfect. Well, on that note then, Craig, I know you mentioned it briefly, but can you again tell us where we can find that information and where we can purchase a copy of the book? Either through the University of Tennessee uh, you can go to UT Extension, or you can go to the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries. Uh, it's easy enough just by Googling my name and uh, UT, and you'll find that easy enough. And, of course, uh, the Quality Deer Management Association uh, carries the book. They provide it in, uh, in, in what they call their shed, uh, where you can buy products. And, and I might also mention to people who want to get more of this kind of information, we, we provide this and so much more in those deer steward courses offered through the Quality Deer Management Association, and they're held across the country. And, uh, and it's a great opportunity for somebody to learn all kinds of stuff about deer, deer habitat, and uh, you know some aspects about hunting as well. So true. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I attended one of those courses, I think, seven or eight years ago, right. and, and it really was one of the without a doubt, probably the single greatest educational opportunity I've had when it comes to deer habitat and all these things. So, so I can't, I cannot recommend them enough. And Craig, are, are you going to be participating in them again this summer? Yes, we have, uh, I think two deer steward one courses and at least two deer steward two courses. Okay. Uh, one of them is coming up here pretty soon and in Iowa, uh, yeah, I think May twentieth, twenty first through the the twenty third, I believe it is. Great, and I think that includes a site visit to Bill Winky's property as well, which I which I imagine will be pretty interesting. Yes, yes, it'll be it'll be a fun time. That's terrific. Well, for anyone out there who who hasn't already checked that out, I highly recommend 
definitely giving it a look. And if you can't make one of the in-person opportunities, which which I do think are the best way to go about it, I think there are also some great opportunities with the online modules that are available. There's an online version of the Deer Steward course, which definitely can be a, a great education too. So check those out at qdma.com. And Craig, I just can't thank you enough. This has been really, really interesting. And I think for everybody out there who's ever wondered about food plots getting started or taking their food plot game to the next level, I think you just made a huge difference for them. So thanks for that. Well, you're most welcome, and and I enjoyed it and appreciate you uh, asking me to be on. Absolutely. And Dan had to jump off because of uh, children issues with the little little kids in the family, but uh, he wanted to say thank you as well, Craig. So I uh, will make sure to include links to everything you mentioned for folks to check out the book. And uh, I guess until we chat next time, thanks again and, and good luck this summer and fall. All right. Very good. Same to you and look forward to seeing you again. Well, there you go. Talk about a serious education on deer habitat. Just Awesome, awesome stuff there. And with that, we are going to wrap things up. A few quick reminders, though. First, be sure to check out the new 100% Wild podcast. We've just released a new episode featuring Rod Owen of the Drury Outdoors team, and we're discussing how to self-film your hunt. So check that out, and please subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes. That's a huge help. We also need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us. I hope this episode inspired you to get a little dirt in your hands and to get outside improving deer habitat. And of course, until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.